If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, the data editor, and today we're bringing you a special episode on Albert Einstein and his theory of general relativity, which was made public by Einstein a hundred years ago this month. Little understood at the time, his theory would go on to change the way scientists think about the universe. And even a century on, it's still revealing things about our cosmos. So we're here today with Oliver Morton, our Essays and Briefings editor. Hello, Ollie. Hi, Ken. And Jason Palmer, our science correspondent. Hello, Jason. Hello. And we're going to try to understand what is Einstein's general theory of relativity and why it matters. So, Jason, let me start with you and ask you, what is Einstein's general theory of relativity? How long have you got? Uh, We've got about 30 hours for the podcast. Okay. (laughs) But it's all relative. We actually... Bad joke, but we had to get it out. But why don't we try to do it as simply as possible for our time-pressed listeners? Okay. In general, general relativity is about how uh, gravity isn't really a force. It is a curvature of space-time. Bang. Done. That begs a lot of questions. So what is space-time? Okay. So this gets us back to 1905, 10 years before the general theory of relativity came the special theory of relativity. And that was all concerned with... Uh, well, effectively, with a whole bunch of thought experiments about what would happen if you were on a train going at close to the speed of light and then turned the train's headlight on and, and, and this sort of thing. And one of the outcomes of that is a formalism in which we understand that space and time are not separate things but part of the same fabric. I know that this is the special theory of relativity, not the general, but it's still important. So please explain to me what is the special theory before we then try to generalize it? So explain traveling at the speed of light and, and what happens. Ollie. Well, the, the special theory is really about establishing this interesting fact that wherever you are and, wherever you're, and however fast you're moving, the speed of light still looks the same. That's a very strange way of thinking about the universe. Uh, And it's also a slightly strange thing to have in a theory called relativity because it says there's this absolute thing that the speed of light is always the same. And the implication of the fact that the speed of light is the same everywhere is that measurements of other things you might seem – that might seem more naturally absolute like time and space vary from place to place. So things that seem to be simultaneous in one frame of reference may look different in other frames of reference. Sizes can expand and contract depending on the speed of the person who's measuring them. This is very strange, but it's, in fact, mathematically considerably simpler than general relativity. And conceptually, it's also simpler, too, because it only applies to special cases, hence special relativity. It applies when people are standing still or when they're moving at constant speeds. And it applies to things that have to do with electromagnetism, which is, at the time, most of the force that's known to the world, but not the only force that's known to the world, because there's also gravity. What general relativity had to do was both deal with gravity and deal with people whose speed 
changed, people who were accelerating and decelerating in the cosmos. Uh, but that's the genius of it is that it shows that they are the same thing. This changing motion, this acceleration stuff is one and the same gravity. Gravity kind of in a sense was what uh, general relativity kind of got rid of as this independent thing, kind of called it a you thought it was a force. Well, actually, it's just this sort of this field, this sort of warping of the space time. So special relativity introduces this idea of space time, which is this four dimensional thing, three spatial dimensions, one time dimension in terms of maths. That bit's actually fairly straightforward. Thank you, Minkowski. But it then says this space time that special relativity created in general relativity starts getting warped. So if you imagine space time as previously having been flat, in general relativity, Einstein talks about how it can become bent. And it's that bending of space time, which is what mass does. And that's what gives us gravity. Gravity is how things move in bent space-time. Okay, before we get to the general theory more deeply, let me simply ask, why is it that we believe that the speed of light is constant? One reason for this was that measurements of the speed of light seemed to be the same no matter which way round you were measuring it. So the Earth's movement through space didn't seem to have any effect on the way that the speed of light was measured. The other one was that this actually helped Einstein in a more general way of thinking about space-time. So... The idea that the the speed of light might be constant is one that he takes and runs with and he gets all the rest of special relativity out of that. So we think that because it it, it turns out to be true now. It's now been exhaustively shown in the lab. But also Einstein thinks that because that's what helps him. One of the really interesting things about Einstein's work is the way that he takes things that help him get forward and goes with them. He's not particularly interested in trying to explain everything. He finds this one thing and focuses and sees all the ramifications of it. It's one of the things that's really exciting about general relativity is that when it comes out, it hardly explains anything. That's it's right. just this new way of looking at the universe in which things are falling through space-time in ways that look curved to us, but if you look in the weird mathematics of space-time, look straight. So when it comes out, uh, it does explain one thing, which is the orbit of Mercury, where the measurements seem to be a little bit off, unless it was explained by the general theory that there was some other force acting on it. Yeah, or uh, there was even a planet called Vulcan that was hypothesized that might have given you the extra gravity to, to, to make up the difference. Okay, so Ollie has told us that space-time is curved. Can you give us an example of that, Jason? Probably the best one is uh, when the equations of uh, the general theory were laid, laid out. Haha, we can get Mercury to move in the right way. But in the next year, Einstein went on to predict, okay, given that's the case, given my new theory is, is so helpful here, here are the things that we should be able to measure. Um, and one of the things you can see is the, is the bending of light. If space-time is curved, everything falls through it in the same curved way, even light, because it, it has an energy. This was not an entirely new idea, but Einstein put very hard numbers to it. Um, and he said, if you look at where the stars appear to be in the sky during an eclipse, the sun will, will bend those light rays in such a way that the apparent position of the stars will change. Um, and a great opportunity for that arose in 1919. Arthur Eddington, a, uh, an up-and-coming astronomer, led an expedition to go look at stars in the sky during an eclipse. And sure enough, relativity proved this to be right. So you can just imagine this, stars seen past the sun. You're looking at the, the sort of, you know, the corona of the sun during an eclipse, and you're looking at stars that are behind it. Necessarily, the gravity of the sun is going to loop those uh, rays around the sun a bit and change where you perceive those stars to be. The whole thing is laid up. Like, you will have seen this kind of... Um, 
rubber sheet analogy, right, where you kind of plonk down a planet or a sun or what have you, and it sort of, you know, it dents the sheet. You put a, a grid, like a like graph paper kind of grid on that, they kind of warp down. These are the kinds of paths, if you like, that things follow. We speak of something falling into orbit around a planet and what have you. It's just tracing out the curves, this sort of bent space-time that is, again, if you kind of undo the, the gnarly mathematics, is actually the straight line it wants to follow. So now we understand what the general theory of relativity is and how it would apply in the case of this planet on this this rubber tarp or a bowling ball on a trampoline and why things would now go towards it. I understand that. So what is the implication of this other than to identify the ghost planet of Vulcan? Or other to abolish the ghost planet of Vulcan. Right. Exactly. Um, well, this is one of the interesting things about general relativity. To begin with, although you can do these observational tests, the Eddington test, it's not hugely relevant to a huge amount of other things going on in physics. And that's kind of exciting because there's an awful lot of other stuff going on in physics. This is the time when the quantum revolution is getting underway. We have radiation, which is still poorly understood. We're beginning to understand the structure. I use we loosely here. The structure of the atom. We, we 100 years ago. Um, and... All these things. And relativity doesn't really apply to all these, partly because the equations are extremely complicated uh, or extremely difficult to work with, as Jason said. And this means that they can be solved only for really remarkably idealized situations, such as the whole universe and peculiarly symmetrical arrangements within it. And that means that because it doesn't apply to what most other scientists are doing, because it's hard to do, most people don't do it. And so for quite a long time, uh, general relativity is something that very mathematically minded, brilliant people like um, Einstein or indeed the famous mathematician Gödel think about these things. But it doesn't actually apply itself hugely to the physics that the rest of the world is doing. And that conceptual distinction is made a little harsher by the fact that Einstein doesn't approve of the physics that the rest of the world is doing because Einstein thinks the quantum theory is fundamentally flawed. So he's not particularly interested in pushing on that. And there's a certain sense in which, you know, Einstein is just sort of like carving his own sweet path, falling hmm. freely hmm. through the curved space-time of his own imagination. Not that he doesn't believe in quantum theory at its root. He just didn't like the, the direction it was taking with Heisenberg and Dirac and all those. He, well, of course, some of his work, helps found the basic quantum theory. Um, right. That's actually not relativity, but uh, quantum work is what Einstein got his, got his Nobel Prize for. But there are aspects of quantum theory that, that he's very uneasy with. I mean, he famously, the probabilistic sent part of quantum theory, he famously says, God does not play dice with the world. And Einstein was fond of saying things about God in that way, that God is subtle but not malicious. And eventually Niels Bohr, one of the great quantum physicists, said, I wish Einstein would stop telling God what to do. <laughs> anyway, one of, the things that, one of the things that Einstein didn't like about quantum theory was its probabilistic nature. He wanted things to be sure. Another thing he really didn't like about um, quantum theory, and this is one of the things that brings it into quite direct conflict with relativity, is that quantum theory is fundamentally non-local. The properties of objects are not all located, as it were, within the object. There are ways that Einstein characterized as spooky action at a distance, there are ways that uh, things in different parts of the world are coordinated. 
Einstein went out of his way to create a thought experiment that showed that this was basically implausible. We've now actually done that um, thought experiment, and it turns out no. We, we again, we yeah. have been yes, busy. we have been busy. Um, some people that Jason wrote about her the other week have now um, done this thought experiment in the most exhaustive way possible in the real world, and it turns out, yeah, spooky action at a distance. The universe is not local. Not everything is specified at a given point. So we, we now have a sense of what the general theory is. We also know how it's been used. My question for you to end the program is to think a little bit sci-fi. And in a 100 years from now, what do you think we will be talking about when we talk about the general theory? How else will we may have applied it in the coming century? Probably the most notable thing from the modern vantage point about general relativity is that as brilliant as it is at describing things out there in the cosmos, it does not line up with the with the quantum mechanics that, that Einstein was made so uncomfortable by. So a great, great many very smart people are trying to find a way to, to join them together. I would like to think that within 100 years, well within 100 years, there is a theory that kind of includes them both. I mean, history is littered with examples where a pretty good shot at a theory is subsumed by something bigger, broader, that might even take in sort of other competing theories and so on, because some bigger, broader theory is more representative of what nature is really like. There are hints that you know, the humanity is, is on its way. I, I'll, I'll use the, the royal we again. We're on our way, Ken, to finding such a theory. And, and I should think that before 100 years are up, we'll find it. I, th- I think that's true. I certainly would like to think that's true. And I think, you know, we might speculate right now that we know some of the things that are going into go, going to go into that theory. There are going to be aspects of information theory there because there are aspects of information theory that apply to black holes. There's going to be a whole lot of cool stuff that's going to look different but vaguely similar. However, in 100 years' time, I'm going to make a fairly fearless prediction. There are still going to be people looking back at what Einstein did in 1915 when no one else was thinking about this and when he came up with these beautiful, weird equations unlike anything anyone had tried to apply to the universe before and they're going to say, wow, now that was a thing to do. That was some kind of a thing. That's beautiful. Thank you, Ollie. Thanks for joining me, Ollie. And Jason, thank you. That's all for this episode. Before we go, we'd like to let you know that you can participate in the conversation on social media. Our Twitter handle is at EconSciTech. Mine is at KNKukier, C-U-K-I-E-R. Ollie's is at Eater of Sun. And Jason's is at D. Jason Palmer. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, please visit Economist.com in London. This is The Economist. <music> Economist. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.